Welcome to Pet Sitter Confessional. Today, we're brought to you by Time to Pet and the Peaceful Pet Music YouTube channel. Are you struggling with generational differences in your company? Whether you've hired or are working with a client that isn't in the same age bracket, we sometimes feel like we struggle to connect and understand them. Are generational differences even real, and how do we overcome them in our business? Today, we're interviewing Dr. Michael Urich, Dean of the Alex G. McKenna School of Business, Economics, and Government at St. Vincent College in Pennsylvania, as well as a professor of management and operational excellence. His research interests include leadership, conflict resolution, and identity in the workplace. Much of his work actually focuses on issues related to intergenerational phenomena within organizations or businesses. He also often examines how popular culture can be used to advance organizational behavior theory. For fun, he enjoys music and, since 1998, has been a semi-professional jazz musician. And, based on the title of some of his books and articles, he's a huge fan of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. Dr. Urich first became interested in generational differences when he made a very key observation. Uh, so as I'm thinking about my, my colleagues and my, my friends, uh, you know, I'm, I'm thinking I'm, and I'm realizing none of them actually fit the stereotype uh, that I'm hearing about. And I started wondering, well... Are these stereotypes really accurate? You know, because all these trainings, all these blogs, all these all these new news articles that you hear about generational differences, really they're just talking about some stereotypes that are out there. And so I started investigating this. And I started thinking, okay, where are these? Where's the content of this coming from? And you know, further on in my career, I got into training and development. I started getting more on the academic side of things trying to understand where the research was at on these generational issues and generational differences and realizing that actually at the time, you know, we're talking, uh, I guess close to 20 years ago or so at the time, there wasn't really a whole lot out there in terms of academic research about generational issues and generational differences in workplaces. So uh, whenever I decided to to make academia, my, my full-time career, um, I left my job, went for my doctorate, and I was trying to figure out what, you know, what am I passionate about research, researching? What do I really want to learn more about? And so I thought, well, you know, this generational stuff that I've been encountering in, in the workplace, in businesses, I would like to learn more about because it doesn't seem like there's a lot there. And at the time I was told when I first started thinking about it, yeah, that's of interest to practitioners. That's of interest to people in a variety of industries, including pet sitting. Uh, um, but academics aren't really as interested in that right now. So, yeah, that's not going to get published in the top journals until it did. And that was sort of like the, the, you know, the snowball at the top of the hill that eventually kept rolling and rolling and rolling and turned into a bigger snowball at the bottom. Um, <laughs> so then I started getting more into this and now people started publishing things on intergenerational um, interactions, intergenerational conflict, intergenerational differences in the workplace. Uh, I'm of the mind that, I don't know if there are clear generational differences. I don't really think it matters. I think I don't think I care about that because people report to me all the time. They have a hard time talking with people from different generations. So whether or not those differences are just perceptions or whether or not those differences are are true differences that can be tested and, and you know supported academically doesn't really matter. I know that people are reporting challenges. And so my research and my background is kind of skipping that part of what are the actual generational differences, if any, but what are the challenges and how can we improve those challenges? How can we improve communication? How can we um, resolve conflict? 
Perception often shapes reality, particularly in the context of the workplace. This is especially relevant when considering generational differences in intergenerational interactions. Things like perceived differences can become barriers. When individuals believe there are substantial differences between their own generation and other, it creates a barrier to effective communication and collaboration. For, for, for instance, if a millennial worker believes that a baby booner colleague is technologically inept because of their age, they might avoid collaborating on projects entirely if they use newer technologies or avoid talking to them or going to them for help. Even if the baby boomer is perfectly capable of handling the tech, the perception of differences creates this unnecessary hurdle. Then there are the self-fulfilling prophecies, where our beliefs about how a person will behave can unconsciously influence our interactions with them, prompting the behavior we initially assumed in the first place. If a, a Gen Z worker assumes that a Gen Xer manager is dismissive of their ideas because of their youth, they might not express their thoughts as confidently as they would have, leading the manager to indeed dismiss their input. Then there's overcoming perceived differences. This task of overcoming these differences often falls upon everyone in the workplace. This requires awareness and effort to challenge personal assumptions and stereotypes about other generations. It's about encouraging open communication, fostering an understanding environment, and focusing on individuals' capabilities rather than generalizing them based on their generation. It can also involve structured initiatives, such as intergenerational mentoring programs, which provides opportunities for different generations to learn from one another and debunk those misconceptions. And then it'll always, leadership role is so important. Managers and leaders of your company, meaning you, play a key role in mitigating the impacts of these perceived differences. By promoting a culture that values diversity and inclusivity, they can help shift perceptions. You can help shift perceptions and build more cohesive and a productive team that works better together. Perceived generational differences can have a tangible impact on the dynamics and the workplace as a whole. But what are some of the common misconceptions out there? Yeah, you know, you, you hear things like younger generations are lazy or entitled. Older generations are too conservative, don't want to change. You hear things like that all the time. You hear about different communication styles between generations. You see, you hear about um, how a younger generation might overuse technology while an older generation might not want to adopt technology. You know, things like that in, in typical workplaces are things that, that I've heard quite regularly. Um, but the interesting thing is, is are these true generational differences or is this just a process of, you know, where, where, where individuals who are now of an older generation when they were younger also wanting to push the envelope, also acting the same way perhaps as some individuals who are younger now. And so are these generational differences? Is this a life stage difference? Or are these really, you know, differences at all? And, you know, as you said, just perception. So that's kind of what, you know, I'm trying to untangle. But in terms of the stereotypes, in terms of the descriptors that are out there, I would say those are some of the biggest ones. Even the term generation has the potential to complicate discussions about workplace dynamics because it can inadvertently promote stereotyping and overgeneralization. When we categorize people into specific generations, such as baby boomers, uh, Gen X, millennials, Gen Z, we might assume that everyone within that group shares the same characteristics, behaviors, and attitudes. However, this is a simplification that doesn't account for individualistic differences and the wide range of experiences within a single generation. And this just gets into a bigger discussion on the importance of words. I mean, one, there's the promoting understanding and respect. 
where language that we use is powerful and can shape our understanding of the world and how we treat others. By using terms that promote understanding and respect, we can better facilitate intergenerational communication and cooperation. For instance, instead of labeling someone as a boomer or a millennial, which carry certain assumptions, refer to them by their role, their name, or other relevant neutral descriptors. We need to also avoid stereotypes. Stereotypes can hinder effective communication and teamwork. When we use generation labels, it's easy to fall into the trap of assuming that these stereotypes are accurate. Actually, (laughs) using more precise language can help us avoid these misconceptions entirely. We need to also emphasize individuality. Every person is unique with their own set of skills, experiences, perspectives. By focusing on individual traits rather than generational labels, we recognize the diversity and help to foster a more inclusive workplace. This could mean replacing statements like, millennials need constant feedback with, some team members thrive on regular feedback. Being careful with our language also helps facilitate effective communication. Clear, respectful language helps facilitate more effective communication by reducing misunderstanding and promoting an open dialogue. This is essential in a diverse workplace where individuals of different generations need to work together towards a common goal. And Dr. Yurik believes that the term generation just has a lot of problems with it. Yeah, absolutely. Because, um, you know, I've done over 100 interviews throughout my research and, and talked with a lot of people, collected a lot of data. And, and sometimes when you ask somebody, well, what's your generation? They actually don't know. They think they might, but but they don't know. I was talking with somebody who was clearly, uh, he, he was, I think, at the time, this is probably five or 10 years ago, but at the time, I think he was in his 70s and labeled himself as someone who was uh, a millennial. <laughs> and I thought, well... <laughs> you've heard that term. I don't think it applies to you. And so I, I don't know that he just heard the term on passing or was confused about what the term meant, but I'm thinking, you know, some of the discourse that surrounds uh, generations is very confusing. And it's, it gets confusing in terms of the labels themselves. It gets confusing in terms of the cutoff years, because depending on, you know, what you read, the cutoff years can be different. And it gets confusing, especially when, you know, now there's talk of these cuspers and things along those lines. But, you know, before there was talk about these micro generations or or whatever they're calling them now, uh, it it was very difficult to say, okay, well, I was born this year. If I was born a year earlier, I would have been a Gen X. But because I was born this year, I'm a millennial. So, you know, is there really that that, that one year difference? Is there really that big of a change in someone's? Uh, and someone that would put them into a different uh, stereotype, <laughs> stereotypical category. Well, because there's also experiences and life history that happens in there as well. I, I mean, I see these all the time of where they go, only Gen Xers will get this. And it's like, well, no, I, I listen to that music too, or I, I remember that news thing. So there's a lot of, there's a lot of just uh, experiential things that go along with it Well, as well, not just the, the day you were born. Right. Yeah. It's experience. Uh, it's what you were exposed to. It's it's what you um, are comfortable with during your formative years. You know, uh, for example, you know, with my generation, I should be great with technology, but I hate technology. But <laughs> in a lot of the jobs that I've had early on, at least, I've been assigned to sort of technology oriented roles. Okay, this person is younger in our organization. I'm not, this is a long time ago. I'm not younger anymore. <laughs> that doesn't quite fit me anymore. But, you know, and earlier in my career, whenever I'd go into a new job, this person's younger, let's give him some tech stuff. Mm. 
I'm bad at it and I don't really enjoy it. So, you know, by using that stereotype, this is just a personal antidote, but using that stereotype on me is something where it's like, yeah, you could probably find someone who's way better at this stuff and, and enjoys this way more than I do. that would be better suited for this. Um, and so if we're relying on stereotypes too much as we're making job related decisions, that's going to be a detriment to our businesses. Have you heard of Time to Pet? Susan, the pet gal, has this to say. Time to Pet has helped us grow exponentially. We believe the platform's features make us by far more professional than other companies who use conventional dashboards. They are the software gurus constantly developing and improving the platform based on user feedback. This decision was a good one. If you're looking for new pet sitting software, give Time to Pet a try. Listeners of our show can save 50% off your first three months by visiting timetopet.com slash confessional. It turns out the way you talk with other people in the workplace can have far-reaching impacts and extending beyond the internal structure of your business and actually going on to impact client relationships and your business's external reputation as well. It's vital to recognize the inherent dangers present when internal communication breaks down or is improperly handled. Misunderstandings, conflicts, or miscommunications among team members can lead to decreased productivity, low morale, and in worst-case scenarios, contribute to employee turnover. This has ripple effects throughout your business, hampering growth and development. Beyond these internal effects, the importance of effective communication and positive interpersonal dynamics becomes even more critical when we consider external relationships, particularly with our clients, with our customers. For instance, if internal discord or poor communication habits are prevalent within your team, it's likely that these issues will extend to interactions with clients. This can result in a range of problems from delays in service provision to reduced quality of services or even loss of clients. The overall image of your business may suffer, which in turn affects your position in your market. To mitigate, to reduce these risks, you should place a high priority on fostering effective communication, mutual respect, and understanding within the workplace. This could involve regular trainings on interpersonal skills, clear communication of job roles and expectations, conflict resolution strategies, and cultivating an open and inclusive culture. There's that word again, cultivating open and inclusive culture of everybody on your team. Also, it's important for when you hire a manager to consider communication skills and a cultural fit when selecting new staff members. When the internal workplace environment is positive and cohesive, this often reflects positively on external interactions, contributing to a stronger, more resilient, and more successful company. Dr. Yurik talks about the dangers that come from these kind of thoughts and actions in the workplace. I think, you know, and I've heard this through my interviews where people might interact with somebody they perceive to be of a different age and they immediately shut down and they say, Oh, we have nothing in common. There's no way I can interact with this person. I think one, not to have that reaction. Okay. If you're interacting with somebody who is older or younger to be open, first of all, just to say, I want to, even though I might be inclined to shut down or I might think this is going to be a challenging interaction. I want to not do that and enter into this with an open mind and and to be proactive in doing that, I think is a good thing. The second thing is if we're using generational stereotypes to guide those interactions first, I would question ourselves, you know, anybody to see, am I really using a stereotype to guide this interaction or am I getting to know this person as an individual one-on-one so I can have a more uh, meaningful interaction, more meaningful relationship with this person at work. So that's the second thing. And along those lines, then, the third thing is, if I'm being guided by 
stereotypes or biases related to age or related to generation to ask myself, where did I get that information? If I believe that generation, whatever is always, uh, uh, is, is, for example, a poor at communicating. Where did I find that out? Did I read that somewhere? Is that personal experience? If it's personal experience, is that generalizable to everybody from that generation? If I read it somewhere, or I heard it somewhere, did they actually look at data that supports that? And so it's questioning where you got that information about your expectations uh, for another generation. Doing some of that identity work, right, to address our own bias in, in yeah. ourselves as we're, as we're interacting with them, because we, we have to be collaborative in the workplace. We have to be reaching out, being talking, you know, working, solving problems, all of that. And if we are bringing this bias, as you've mentioned a couple of times, uh, Mike, of going, well, they're not going to be good at this because I can tell because they have gray hair. So that obviously means that they don't like this or, man, that person's really young. So I'm just going to assume they are only going to want to text me or they're going to do this. So then we start putting them in these positions and we look up and we wonder why people aren't sticking around with us for very long and, or, or enjoying coming into the workplace. Yep. And, and you know, I'm, I'm of the mindset that people are generally good people. You know, I don't think that anyone goes into, well, I shouldn't say anyone. I don't think that most people go into interactions by saying, I'm going to be a jerk to this person, or I don't want to deal with this. You know, I think that sometimes people have, particularly age-based biases, and they might not even realize it, you know? And that's why I say question question how you approach those interactions, question where you're getting your information, because even if people don't think they have a bias, there might be a bias. You know, there might be a bias. I've caught myself, you know, as much as I talk about not relying on generational uh, descriptors and generational labels, I've caught myself talking about them. And I've caught myself saying, you were thinking, oh, well, this person's of this generation, so here's my expectation. I research this stuff, and I understand that I still potentially have biases related to age, and that's not a good thing. And so we need to think about where those biases might become might be coming from and keep them in check as we enter into interactions. As you progress through different stages of your life, your perspectives, attitudes, and communication styles can and let's be honest, will undergo significant changes. And this is due to a myriad of factors, including personal growth, life experiences, and changes in responsibilities or roles. Therefore, it's imperative to continually assess and recalibrate how we interact with the world around us. This involves introspection and awareness of our evolving selves and the impact we have on others. We're never static. In the context of running our business, as you become a more seasoned professional, you'll communicate and handle situations differently than you did when you first started. Such changes should be recognized and accounted for in order to maintain effective communication and collaboration and encourage that growth and development in your own team members. Life stage transitions also extend to our broader interactions outside of our business. Relationships with friends, family, and community members can all be influenced by our personal growth and changes throughout our life. As we grow and mature, our understandings deepen, our values might shift, and the way we relate to others can transform. We may become more empathetic, more patient, and perhaps more assertive. Ultimately, the need for regular self-checks and adjustments in how we interact with the world becomes even more crucial as we progress year after year. It is a continuous process of learning and adapting, aimed, we're aimed at fostering healthier and more productive relationships and a better understanding of ourselves in relation to those around us. Unfortunately, 
miscommunication and overgeneralizations can lead to conflict in the workplace that we, as the managers and owners, have to try and solve. Yeah, and that's that's a challenging thing too because my understanding of of the pet sitting industry is that a lot of the communication is done via text or via email, correct? Right. Yeah, yeah. and so that's that's that adds a whole other layer to it. I mean, if you're in Many of the people that I interviewed are, are more in what I would call like a traditional office space, you know, where if there's a conflict, you can either talk to that person, resolve that person by going to the next cube over or, or or what have you. Even those organizations, though, COVID kind of threw a whole wrench into those when everything went online. So in, in that regard, they're no longer as, as I think, um, or your your industry is no longer as unique as some of the other industries, because now a lot of communication is just online, is just via text, is via, you know, something like Zoom or Teams or along those lines. That makes it even more challenging, especially if we're talking about text-based communication. It's very difficult to engage in conflict over text-based communication. And, you know, the other thing uh, is ghosting. You know, if you're having challenge, I don't know if you experience this a lot uh, in your industry, Colin, but like, you know, uh, is is my employer going to ghost me? My employee going to ghost me? Um, I'm reaching out to that person. There's an issue, or I need to schedule this person for something. Are they going to even get back to me? Uh, and so that's a challenge that that has occurred a lot more regularly that some people have suggested could be generationally based. Now, again, I don't know that for sure, but that's what I've heard is, is suggested. So, you know, as much as you can, I would say. Talk with that person one-on-one. If you can schedule face-to-face, that would be better than trying to do something via text or via email. If you can't do that, then I think phone would be an improvement. I think that um, you know Zoom, Skype, Teams would be an improvement. That way you can see that person, but you can also hear that person's tone of voice, et cetera. Um, one of the things that I, I've learned through my research, though, is not to assume a preferred method of communication. You know. Um, there are some individuals that say, okay, this person is a millennial, so they must prefer a text message. You know, again, get to know that person one-on-one, get to understand what that person really likes in terms of how to communicate and try and, ju- and adjust for that channel as well. You know, if that person is great with text messaging, that's great. Um, but if that person would prefer a phone call, try that, that out. It has to fit between both parties. So it has to fit between the the, the business owner and the employee. Uh, or the manager and the employee, but find that thing you can agree on that is is a happy spot for both parties in terms of even just the channel for communication. And I like also how you're relating it back to what you're talking about. So in those really intense, serious situations where maybe you, you do need to have a little bit of conflict or you need to be a little bit more blunt about something, scheduling that phone call, having that one-on-one with them is really going to just, again, it's going to bring a lot of context to that while also understanding that you you may love being in that face-to-face interaction. The person that you're talking to at, at an individual level might not be enjoying that face-to-face interaction interaction and would rather have preferred to do it some other method. Yeah. So you have to think about all those things. Um, And then in terms of the conflict itself, you know, you have to think about what's really causing that conflict, you know, get to the root cause. Um, Is this person, you know, if you're having a conflict, this person's not showing up. Talk with that person about schedule. Talk with that person. Try to find as much information as you can without making assumptions to 
trying to get to that root cause. Um, if you go in and, you know, again, with assumptions, with biases right off the bat, that's really not going to get you many places. But if you schedule the meeting in terms of information seeking and say, look, I want to get some information on what's going on here so that we can have a dialogue, that helps out a lot and that will help out a lot. One of the biggest changes in the pet care industry over the last couple of years has been the increase of anxiety in pets. And a lot of pet owners don't know how to react when their beloved pet is facing a bout of anxiety, noise sensitivity, or depression. However, various studies have shown that animals react very positively when calming music is played for them. As a trusted pet sitter, have your clients check out Peaceful Pet Music calm music for pets on youtube where they can give their pet the best chance at relaxing while they are away from peaceful melodies to soothing nature sounds this youtube channel is the go-to spot when your client's pet is anxious and you don't know where to turn complete with beautiful and vibrant animations their videos will become your home for the tools needed to keep the client's pet in a state of peacefulness be sure to subscribe at Peaceful Pet Music, Calm Music for Pets on YouTube and hit the bell so you never miss a moment of music or visit the link in the show notes or on our website. Remember how we talked about generational biases and how they impact your business, everything from how you relate to staff and how you relate to your clients? But what about hiring? Such biases around generations are often rooted in stereotypes or misconceptions about different generations, and they can unconsciously affect the way you view and evaluate potential candidates. For instance, some may hold to the view that older workers are less adaptable to technological advances, or that younger workers lack the commitment or maturity necessary for certain roles. These biases can lead to unequal opportunities in an unbalanced workplace, which in turn hinders your business's overall performance and growth. To ensure fair and effective hiring, it's essential to acknowledge and address these biases head-on. The first step is just awareness, right? Recognizing that these biases exist in us and understanding how they influence our decision-making. You can take bias training as a practical way uh, of understanding how this affects you and allows for identification and examination of stereotypes that might unwittingly hold about different age groups. Next, it's critical if you're in the hiring process to implement structured, objective hiring practices to help mitigate the influence of these kind of biases. This could include standardizing interview questions for all candidates involving diverse interview panels to balance out individual biases and focusing on skills, expertise, and potential instead of age or generational attributes. Once you bring people into your company, you need to make efforts to continue to ensure positive interactions and equality within that workplace for them. This could involve cultivating a culture of respect and understanding, promoting intergenerational collaboration, and offering ongoing training to adjust biases and improve communication. By taking such measures, you can ensure you're not only hiring the best candidates irrespective of their age, but also fostering a more inclusive, productive, and harmonious workplace. All of this takes intentionality and is actually a little bit of work on us, but it's absolutely critical. Yeah, that's a great point. You know, I think, again, it goes back to those assumptions, too. It goes back to understanding what the individual wants and not what the stereotype wants. You know, so I I guess there are two things on the side of hiring somebody. It's it's not to. You know, there, there is that stereotype, I think, that I've heard that. Well, younger generations want more flex time than older generations. Oh, don't all generations kind of want that? I think that's a commonality thing for (laughs) for like a variety of different age groups. Whereas an individual, though, regardless of age, might want a more steady schedule. 
So I think if you're talking about a schedule, uh, if you're talking about things along those lines, and that's part of the hiring discussion that you're having, to not make an assumption there would be a preference for one over the other, for example, um, based on someone's age. And that's, again, I mentioned scheduling just as one example, but that could be anything. That could be compensation. That could be, you know, level of support with regard to development and, and uh, you know, education and training and, and all sorts of things. Um, so, again, it's not to make those assumptions. But on the other side, uh, it's to make sure that your business, your organization is also open to age diversity as well. So, you know, as, as people are recruiting and you look around, you're thinking, who are all the employees here? Are they all of a similar age? And maybe asking yourself, why might that be? Is there something going on in our business that is you know, either biasing our hiring practices or making people of a certain age group not want to work here, uh, want to work for us? So I think it's questioning those practices, which is important as well. That's huge because many of us don't have well outlined hiring practices, sure. or or we 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 do a we put together our hiring practice one time and then it never evolves and it never changes. And we look up, like you said, going, well, I wonder why this is. Why do I have all of this, or why am I getting these kind of applicants? And so that flows through both with the the quality of applicants, the age of applicants, and the diversity of applicants that we get through our door. Yeah, absolutely. So I think. You know, always having that questioning mindset and that improvement mindset. You know, uh, <laughs> one of my sides is I do a lot of work, obviously, on, on generations in the workplace, but I also do a lot of work on operational excellence, which is like continuous improvement, problem-solving, waste reduction. Yeah. So putting on that hat, yeah, it's always about questioning your processes and thinking about how can I do this better tomorrow than I've done it today. One possible solution that you're probably – thinking about right now, because we said to avoid overgeneralization between generations. So we have to look at our biases and make sure that we understand some of our preconceived notion. And we need to focus on the person, focus on the individual in front of us and assess whether they are a good fit for the job that we need done. One possible solution that you're thinking of, I know, is a personality test. What if I have every potential hire take a personality test to make sure and see what kind of person they actually are? Well, there are actually some things and some dangers and some little caveats that we need to have when thinking about this. I'm MD, uh, uh, MBTI certified. I'm trained in that, the Myers-Briggs type indicator. And I did that because uh, I went through that during covid I've been familiar with that uh, test for a long time, but, you know, I've heard a lot of negative and positive things about it. You know, I believe, and it's my person, personal opinion, that things like a personality test should not be used in hiring practices. Um, personality doesn't – so when we're hiring somebody, we don't want to bias ourselves in any way, right? We want to hire somebody who – can do the job the best or has the potential to do the job the best. And those are the things that we should really be thinking about. Can this person do the job? Can this person be trained to do the job? Does this person have potential to do the job? And that's really it. When we start then thinking about personality, then we're getting a little, you know, a personality isn't a behavior necessarily. And so let me, let me give an example. You might think, or a business owner might think, okay, I want somebody who's going to be extroverted because Someone needs to be extroverted to be able to communicate with the client well. Well, you know, extroversion is, is a personality trait, but you don't need extroversion to provide good customer service. Right. And so we're, I think by leveraging that, we're inherently 
putting bias into a hiring decision. Mm. Um, people who rate highly on introversion, they can still provide good customer service, right? They can still interact well with a customer. They just might do so in a different way. Um, doesn't mean they're not going to be good in that role. So we have to separate personality from behavior. And so personality tests, I'm really reluctant to say should be used in hiring at all. Where they should be used for is for information. And, and so I once was on a team, and I think this is sort of a best practice in, per, in, a, in use of a personality test, where we, we the team took a personality test. We all sat down. Someone went through the results with us, and we talked about how um, we can interact together given our personality preferences. Mm. Okay, that, that was good, and actually had some good discussion there. Because that also gives people the opportunity to say, well, my test results say this, but I don't really think that's actually me. You know, I think the test result might have been off on this. And actually, the MBTI current version has that as a requirement, too, to say, yeah, here's what the test says. But then you're supposed to have a dialogue and a conversation with the person that took the assessment to say, does this really fit you or what's your read on this? So um, I think they have a use in terms of starting a discussion beyond that. I would use personality tests with caution. Now, if you have a close working team, if you have a group of managers, right, that, that are going to be highly collaborative and working yeah. really closely, that may be beneficial. Or if you as the manager are going, I want to be able to talk with you better. I want to be able to interact with you better, understand where we're coming from. But you know, it's interesting, Mike, when you said like you need to have that opportunity or give them the opportunity to give feedback on those results. I mean, we do that with background checks, right? Everybody has the right to dispute the results of a background check when they come in to hire. They have however many days. I forget what that is. But giving people that opportunity to explain, dispute, talk about, discuss, interact with that data as opposed to just looking at going, oh, yep, here's what you are. That's how I will label you and I will move on from you because I I personally don't like that or think we need yeah. that. Yeah. I mean, you know, we want to make hiring decisions, employment-related decisions on the basis of can this person do the job, be trained to do the job alone, and anything that's not helping get us that information, like even personality could be potentially biasing those discussions. But again, I think that, that they can be used for as a team building exercise, but there are a lot of team building exercises that can be useful too. So I think it's one of many ways to grow and build a team and get team dialogue going. But uh, other than that, I wouldn't rely on them too much. A personality test is not a whole person, you know, to really understand that person, you got to talk with those individuals. You know, you, you gotta, you gotta get to know that person one-on-one. -on -one. It turns out, in our attempt to not overgeneralize through looking at generations, we can overgeneralize by looking at personality tests. So there are really are five pitfalls that you need to be aware of when it comes to using personality tests in hiring. The first one is the danger of overgeneralization. Here we are yet again. When we rely heavily on personality tests, we run the risk of overgeneralizing people based on their results. These tests, while sometimes insightful, often categorize people into defined personality types. Sound anything like generations here? <laughs> but people are complex. Obviously, their behaviors, motivations, and attitudes can always be, can't always be neatly sorted into categories. Relying on tests could lead to oversimplification and a lack of appreciation for individual nuances. Then there's the potential for misuse. Personality tests can be a helpful tool, but they shouldn't be used as the sole determinant for hiring decisions or understanding someone's capabilities. Using them as a definitive guide can create biases and potential result in unfair decision-making processes. The key is to use them as a part, just one part of a holistic assessment. 
Then there's respecting individual complexity. When personality tests can offer some valuable insights, it's crucial to remember that individuals are much more complex, as we've said over and over again. Everyone has a unique blend of experiences, skills, attitudes, and behaviors that will not be fully captured by any personality test on the market. Then we have to be careful about the interpretation. The results of a personality test can be interpreted in many ways. And like Dr. Yurk said, it's important to talk with those person about those assessments. I think it's more important. Here's this. I don't care what your personality type is. I just care about whether I can interact with it and whether you know how it impacts you in the workplace and how we can get along and overcome that. We have to understand the nuances of personality traits and how they can manifest differently in different people, and that is key to using these tests effectively. Then lastly, we have to ensure that we are using them ethically. This means respecting privacy, explaining to candidates how the information will and will not be used, and ensuring the tests themselves are scientifically valid and reliable. Putting this all together, when it comes to being the owner, the manager of the business, and you're having a team to work with, thankfully, there are a lot of things that we can do to be better at tackling these biases and actually guiding the communication and forming the structure of a cohesive, inclusive business that we want to run. As I mentioned before, just being able to question one's own potential biases, thinking about where you're getting information on generations. Um, Making sure you're not having a knee-jerk reaction to, to shutting down or to, you know, treating an individual a certain way because they're of a certain generation, getting to know them as an individual. Now, those are kind of general things. More specifically, though, I think early on as you're talking about hiring, um, setting the example in terms of how to communicate, setting some guidelines, if not even an example, maybe having a written policy or maybe talking over with somebody a policy of what your expectations are. Okay, look, uh, if I text you, I'm going to text you within these hours and I'm going to leave these hours free for you. Um, and I, I would like you to text me back or respond back within this amount of time. And, and here's how I think would be an appropriate way to respond back to me, phone call, email, text, et cetera. You know, having those, whatever it is, having those guidelines in place that are upfront, that are understood by whoever you're bringing in, that are not generation, generationally specific, that should be for all employees. So they're all treated the same. Um, because sometimes we go down, down that rabbit hole by saying, oh, this person's Millennials, so we want to have a policy for this person that fits this. But this person's a baby boomer, a Gen X, so we want to have a different policy for that person. And it, you know, should fit this. It should be the same for everybody out of fairness that everybody can agree on. And so, um, making sure, uh, that they're communicated up front, though, as well as expectations. And then, you know, a lot of leadership research talks about the manager, the, the business owner modeling the way, you know, showing the types of, communication or the way that conflict is handled, you know, that idea of, of being a role model of, of employees and team members learning from others is really important here to set the way and set the tone of, of what communication, what conflict and conflict resolution could and should look like. It's being consistent. It's being consistent uh, regardless of where you're at in the organization, where you're at in the business. You know, it's, if, if you're expecting someone to follow a rule that you're making, you also need to follow that rule. When you see problems in your business, when you look at where you are struggling, 
always have that operational ex- the hat of operational excellence on and ask, where can we improve? And specifically, where can I improve? That's where we start. Going, nobody seems to be communicating well. Am, am I communicating well? Do I have written guidelines? Do I follow them? Do, do, do I make them part of my habit? Because I know what's going on and going, okay, I wrote down the office hours. I wrote down how you're going to communicate. Well, but I'll go ahead and text you at 11 o'clock at night. And I'm going to text you outside of this. And I'm going to use Slack. And I'm going to use phone calls. But you, no, 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 you don't do that. You follow the rules because that's confusing, right? That doesn't set good expectations. So in leadership, the first aspect is having self Reflection. Often problems within a team or organization, such as poor communication or these kind of biases, stem from the top. You, as a leader, should be willing to be introspective and question your own actions, own behaviors. Then there's consistency in guidelines and expectations. When you set guidelines and expectations for the team, for your business, it is absolutely 100% mission critical that you adhere and follow those rules. Because this kind of inconsistency between what is said and what is done leads to confusion, decreased morale, and reduced respect for you from your team and your clients. This all has a massive impact on the role modeling that you want to have. You often underestimate the impact that your own behavior has on others. If you as a leader are setting rules but not following them, like sending texts outside of those office hours despite having those written guidelines, they are sending, that's sending mixed signals to the team. You are modeling that it's okay to disregard the rules, which can lead to a breakdown in discipline and respect. Then there's the illusion of exceptionalism. As a leader, as a business owner, it's easy for us to fall into the trap of thinking that we're the exception to the rule because it's our business. It's what we do. We we that we built this, right? This could be due to a sense of entitlement or a belief that you have special privileges. It happens to everybody. However, this undermines the team's cohesion and respect for you. See how we keep circling back to this respect issue, respect issue? And when people aren't respected, orders and directions and guidelines aren't followed, which leads to poor performance, which leads to employee turnover. Ultimately, we are trying to promote a culture of mutual respect. Because by adhering to the same rules that you set for your team, you are promoting a culture and allowing your teams to treat everyone equitably and showing through actions that everyone, including you, are expected to follow the rules. Looking for more resources and how to get connected with Dr. Yurik? Well, um, I have a personal website that talks about my research and my, you know, my studies on generational differences and and beyond. And that's Michael Yurik, all one word, MichaelYurik.com. Yurik spelled U-R-I-C-K. So you can you can find there. Uh, connect with me on social media. Just Google Michael Yurik, and my LinkedIn should pop up. Uh, so connect with me there uh, or on Twitter or on Facebook. Um, uh, you know, I'm, I'm Dean at St. Vincent, uh, St. Vincent College in Latrobe, Pennsylvania. So you can find more about uh, about me there and about the programs that are in, in our school, uh, stvincent.edu. Um, but I'm always happy to connect. So please give me an email. Please reach out to me through social media. Again, my email is available from all those channels. You can find uh, ways to get in touch with me via the websites and via social media or send me a message through LinkedIn or, or whatever. I'm always happy to connect and talk more and to share some uh, some some resources. If you're just a little plug, if you're interested in, in checking out some of those books, they are available on you know most uh, major retailers 
you can go to Amazon, just, you know, plug in Michael Yurick and the books should come up. So, um, yeah, I, I appreciate you having me. Thank you. Where does this leave us as the business owners? Let's start. Are you looking to hire employees? Tear through your hiring practices. Look to see where generational biases are surfacing in the kind of questions, the kind of standardization that you're looking for, and other things that you believe personally about the kind of person you want to be working for you. Take those personality tests with a grain of salt and use them carefully throughout that process. If you currently have staff and are struggling to connect with your team members, get to know them at the individual level. Understand what makes them tick. And then importantly, know how you want to communicate or what your expectations for communications are and see if those mash up. And then instead of just broadly generalizing that all people of X generation are XYZ, understand, okay, this is how this person is. How do I manage that person? How do I lead that person well? Is this a lot of work? Yeah, it can be. It absolutely requires work getting to know people on an individual basis. But is it worth it? Also, yes. (laughs) And I hope that you see that. That the entire point of all of this, of understanding how people work and function and how they communicate and expect their their bosses and managers to work with them and how they relate to the workplace, all of that is so that we can have the best possible team of people working for us, serving our clients well. Start with the mission, the vision. Connect with the person and then help them understand how they are connected to the bigger picture at their level and their tasks, their job duties. How does that, how does their role impact the outcome of the service and the business? We want to thank today's sponsors, Time to Pet and the Peaceful Pet Music YouTube channel. And thank you so much for listening. We'd love to get your feedback on this, your experience in hiring and managing a diverse workplace and how you cohesively make that work. Let us know at feedback at petsitterconfessional.com. We hope you have a wonderful, wonderful rest of your week, and we'll be back again soon. I'm <laughs> sorry.